the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Colorado Issues. I'm your host, David Van Zetter. Joining me in studio is Kent Dotar, who's the Public Relations Director for the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Kent, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Thank you for asking me to be here. You know, I had the the distinct pleasure of getting a behind-the-scenes tour with you and uh, my wife this past weekend. It was the first time that I'd been out to your facility. And really, words fail me. It was such a phenomenal experience uh, on a a number of levels. I want to just get into a little bit of the history of the property first and the the organization. Tell me a little bit about its origins and where we've started and, and where we are today. Okay. Some might say that the wild animal sanctuary is one of the best-kept secrets in Colorado. However, we've been around for 38 years, and we specialize in rescuing captive-born as opposed to wild-born large carnivores. So we're currently located out by Keensburg, Colorado, which is out I-76 towards Hudson, a little bit past Brighton. And we have currently about 470 animals on 789 acres. And these animals are large carnivores primarily, bears, lions, tigers, wolves, mountain lions, foxes, bobcats, and the list goes on and on. I typically um, describe it as animals with sharp claws and sharp teeth. And as you saw, we have lots of tigers, we have lots of lions, a lot of bears, although there's still a lot of them are hibernating. So the Wild Animal Sanctuary, as I mentioned, has been around for 38 years, started right here in Boulder, Colorado. Our executive director and founder, Pat Craig, um, grew up in Boulder. His mother still lives on the property he grew up on. And there's a long backstory, of course, and we might get into that, of how he came to begin rescuing animals. So some of these animals, um, they do come from circuses. They come from roadside zoos. They come from just private ownership. We find them in um, crawl spaces, corn cribs, tool sheds. We find them in horse trailers. We find them at gas stations, at truck stops. And the list goes on and Furniture on and stores. on. stores. And furniture stores, yeah. yeah. That's a, no, that's a good local. Names. I don't want to name names. No, that's a, a good local reference right there. Yeah. Uh, but the Wild Animal Sanctuary, we take great pride. We're the largest, oldest sanctuary for rescuing large carnivores in the world. Most people would think that's such a cute little tiger cub or lion cub at the grand opening of some business. But what's the dark side of that that they don't see? Well, there's a couple of things. One is normally those cubs, in order to be handled by people, They have to be habituated around people from a very early age. So quite often, if not all the time, those cubs that are used in situations like that are taken from their mothers, usually at a day or two of age. Whereas in the wild and as nature intended, they might stay with mom for one or two or even three years. The other thing is you can only use cubs like that for about four weeks, at least here in the United States. That's the legal requirement. It's from about eight to 12 weeks. After that period of time, the animal's starting to get already get too large, too dangerous, too uncontrollable, and therefore they're unusable with the public. So from about 12 to 14 weeks of age until the animal dies naturally or sadly might be put down, um, that animal may not have a good home. What typically happens between that scenario and how they end up in your care? Well, very often they end up uh, maybe with some kind of breeder that will sell them 
and I don't even want to say on the black market because there are all kinds of legal ways to, to sell these animals. There are still four states in the country that have no laws at all against large exotics. And so there's a good chance that someone is going to buy that cub thinking, hey, that's going to be pretty neat to have a tiger as a pet. And they might try that for a number of months, a number of years. And what typically happens, we see it quite a bit, is the animal starts to get to be about a year old. Now they're getting very dangerous, very scary, and they can do quite a bit of harm. So the animal gets locked away somewhere. It could be that horse trailer. It could be that corn crib. And if the animal's lucky, they'll at least you know throw out food and water. Let me just interrupt you for just, just to, as a point of reference. Anybody out there thinking of doing such a thing, what's the average – uh, weight of an adult male Bengal tiger? It's going to be over 400 pounds from four to 600 pounds. So that's not here, kitty kitty, is it? Uh, no. And their um, canine teeth are an inch and a half long, both top and bottom. So, I mean, and the incredible jaw strength. So even if they're playing with you, they're going to break your skin or break bones. Okay. Okay. Continue on. So let, okay. let's see how they, I just wanted, wanted to make that point. If you're, you know, thinking about uh, obtaining some kind of wild animal as a pet, I wouldn't advise it. Don't do it. And Colorado is not one of those four states. That is correct. Colorado actually has some very strict laws for a long time about having exotics as pets. Let's name those states. What are the four that are egregiously violating the, if nothing else, ethical treatment of animals? So we have North Carolina and up until about a year ago, South Carolina, but they passed some laws against apes and large exotics last year. So we have North Carolina, Alabama, Wisconsin, and Nevada, where there, there are no specific state laws regarding the ownership of such animals. So you can get one of those kind of animals, and as long as you're meeting basic welfare requirements like you would have for any kind of animal situation, it's perfectly legal to do that. And your neighbors aren't necessarily in a position to tell you, I don't want a tiger next door because it's legal. Having had the opportunity to see the end result of your project and what your people do, you know, it's impressive. I mean, just the, 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 you can see the health of the animals, you know, the, the shininess and the fullness of their coats and their personalities and they're moving around and they're not just lying there lethargic and, and skinny. These are well-fed, well-maintained animals. And how do you get them? What condition are these in? I don't want to terrify my audience with these horrible stories. I know some of them, but, you know, let's try and you know, give them a picture without giving them too much of a picture because it's pretty bad. Yeah, as you can imagine, most of our animals show up in pretty bad shape because people are unprepared to care for them. For one thing, they're usually not ready at all to give them the amount of food that they need. A lion or tiger, an adult lion or tiger, we feed three times a week. Um, that just simulates more how they would eat in the wild. But they're going to eat 20 to 30 pounds of raw meat each time we feed them. So you're looking at 60 to 90 pounds of raw meat a week just to sustain the animal at a good, healthy weight. Um, very often, and most of the time, of course, they don't get adequate exercise, so they start to have all kinds of structural issues. So they have difficulty walking. They start to experience arthritic issues at a very young age. Um, very often, they show up with different kinds of what is described as zucosis, um, where animals have some neurological, psychological issues. Um, just because of boredom, lack of enrichment, because of a, a closed space, because they aren't allowed to do what they would normally do. So they start to go, if you will, stir crazy. So we see animals that are hurt psychologically, socially, physically. And um, we're, we begin right away with the rehabilitation process to get those animals healthy again. One of the things people don't realize very often is that the animals come to us very socially deprived. Um, they grow up in isolation because, like I mentioned, they're very often removed from their mother at a young age. And then they might grow up 
totally isolated from any others of their own kind until we see them. And that could be years, if not decades, down the road. So many of our animals show up without even knowing that another tiger, for example, exists in the world. Our tigers show up, and they don't even know how to communicate with other tigers because they've never had to do so. They don't know they're a tiger. Not at all. Um, and it takes a while for them to learn that, hey, I'm a tiger, you're a tiger, this is how tigers interact, and, and this is how we communicate, this is how we go up and down the fence t- to each other as they go through an introduction process. So, yeah, um, the animals show up in very bad condition. And, of course, you know, there's all, always skin problems. A lot of times there's self-mutilation. So, um, unfortunately, I'm sure our, our listeners can just imagine what some of these animals look like. Yeah, so let's talk about the go team, the, the people that are standing by ready to go at a moment's notice. I think you're, you're on that team, I would suspect. Yep, I'm one of the, the folks. Yes. So tell me about what the experience you had. I think you had a, a pretty big rescue in Latin America somewhere. Yeah, so the one in Latin America, we actually have a number of them. We've had a number of rescues from Mexico. But the one you might be thinking of, and it's hard to believe it's already seven years ago, but we rescued 25 lions from the country of Bolivia. And what had happened was in 2009, Bolivia, as a country, politically had the willpower to pass a law banning animals in circuses. So obviously they gave circus owners a certain amount of time. It was about a year to come into compliance with the law. So by about mid-2010, this grace period was coming up, and circuses that still had animals um, had those animals confiscated. And it turns out that there were 25 African lions from eight different circuses that were confiscated. So we were approached, the Wild Animal Sanctuary was approached um, at the end of 2010 and was asked if we could take any of these lions. And we agreed at the time we had 80 acres available. We agreed to take all those 25 lions at once. All at once. Yes. So in February of 2011, we had about two months to get ready for 25 lions, if you can imagine that. A big cargo plane flew out of Bolivia, flew into DIA, pulled into the United Hangar, and we offloaded 25 um, lions from eight different circuses. And what were the conditions of those animals at the time? Well, the ones that had been most recently rescued, even a day or two before that flight flew out of there, were just emaciated. We had one old lion, Kimba was his name, and he had basically been locked away in a a concrete and steel. They had to break down um, with sledgehammers the wall to get to him because there was no door to get to the place. So they just literally threw food into this old lion, and, of course, he was almost skin and bones. We had another young lion named Campion that they didn't even think – was in good enough condition to make it up on the flight. But fortunately, he survived and is doing very well. Some of the animals had been rescued weeks, maybe a couple months prior to that. So they were fortunate in that they had kind of a little way station or holding area where they were able to be kind of, if you will, fattened up and um, some of their basic health needs were met prior to the flight. So it ran the gamut from some that were in decent shape because they had some time with the rescuers down there to some that were in horrible shape. Having seen the facility again, there's a lot of fattening up going on. That just made me feel great. I, I really enjoyed that. So take us through the process. So you've got the animal. They're emaciated. They're in a variety of stages of poor health. Let's go from the evaluation forward and, and what happens. So typically what happens when we first rescue the animal, very often we have to anesthetize them or sedate them to um, get them into the transfer cage. So that's a great opportunity to give a quick physical. So their teeth are checked. Teeth um, are very problem areas with these kinds of animals. Paws are checked to see if they've been declawed and what kind of shape their claws or feet might be in. And so while the animal's asleep, they get a quick physical. And then from there, again, to think, what is this animal going to need over the next weeks to months to become healthy? 
And then once the animal is brought back to us, um, very typically they are kept alone initially. Um, That is, they're not immediately combined with other animals, but they'll be kept in their own enclosure, what we often call a lockout, next to others of their own kind. So right away, they are given all the stimulation from an animal of their own species. So we'll put a lion next to other lions. We'll put a tiger next to other tigers. We have lockouts that will put um, a bear inside a large bear habitat. So right away, the animals start to begin understanding what they are in relationship to others of their own kind. Um, Obviously, we have to increase their diet um, to begin putting on weight. We do that in a controlled way so that they don't overfeed themselves initially, but we steadily increase the amount of food that they get so that they start putting some meat on their bones. Our lockouts are even typically larger than um, most of the cages these animals come from. So just being in our lockouts, they start to get a little bit more exercise, which contributes to muscle tone. So now as time goes on, and we might be talking weeks to months, the animals begin to develop a social life because you know, they're going to see and be next to those animals of their own kind now on a daily basis. So they're going to begin communicating with one another, both verbally, if you will, whether it's roaring or chuffing or making kind of tiger moaning noises, or it might be just sniffing through the bars. There might be some physical contact as much as possible through the the fencing. Um, Obviously, we don't let the animals uh, have direct, immediate contact with each other because we don't want anyone to get hurt. So it's a, it's a long process. Um, physical rehabilitation usually happens the quickest. That is, you know, they start to get meatier. They start to get stronger. The psychological and social rehabilitation just takes time. It's just like with people. Um, once people are in a healthy environment over time, psychologically they become healthier and socially they become healthier. But they're responding quickly because this is just, you know, a whole other world for them in a positive direction. Very much so. And our keepers contribute to that as well. Our keepers are very experienced, um, so they know these animals well. They do a lot of things to try to, you know, build up the trust of the animal. Many of these animals have a great dislike, if not hatred, if you will, or fear of human beings because of how they were treated before. And so our workers... Um, work very hard at developing the trust or um, building the trust with the animals through treats, through talking to them nicely, never raising our hands, raising our voices, or forcing them to do anything. And that contact is limited, I understand, correct? I mean, you don't want to have a lot of human contact with them from where they are to where they're going. Yeah, we never go in and physically interact with them. Um, We'll only, say, maybe touch an animal if they come up and rub against the fence, um, but then our fingers don't even go through. So it's them kind of pushing against the fence. But the animal has to seek it out. So we never force ourselves onto the animals. And as time goes on and as animals spend more time with their own species and eventually get into those large acreage habitats that you saw, they become less and less caring or I guess they they just care less and less about human contact uh, because their needs are now being met by others of their own kind. Now, this is not a zoo. I want to make that clear, and that's something that you met, you impressed upon us when we were at your facility. It's not a zoo, uh, and there is very limited, if any, human contact going on. So, I mean, having been to you know many zoos and, and something that you described to me, it, it really hit me hard. I didn't realize what I was seeing. So I'm standing in front of a, a big cat enclosure at, at any particular zoo, and there's you know, 20, 30, 50 kids and they're banging on the windows or tapping on the windows or jumping up and down, and they've got food and all kinds of things in their hands. And this animal is pacing back and forth, and his tail is swishing. And that 
is a sign of something, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, it could be, uh, you know, it's a sign of stress and agitation typically. And people forget how sensitive these animals are. I mean, I used to have fish. And they always said, you know, when you tap on the tank of a fish tank, you might as well be putting a bucket on your head and tapping on the bucket. So the same thing with our animals. You know, they're very sensitive to the noise. But the big thing that's going on is those animals don't want to be right there with, you know, one or two or 20 or 50 people staring at them, making noises. They would much rather not be seen at all. So if they could and if they were in the wild, there's a good chance that those animals would um, escape and get away from whatever kind of human presence they're feeling the pressure of. Well, sadly, in a lot of situations, the animals don't have a choice. You know, they're locked on display. And so the animal would rather not be there. They can't get the people to move because obviously it's a a situation where the people are going to be there. And so now this animal has an incredible amount of stress and agitation that I don't want to be here, but I can't do a darn thing about it. So sadly, unfortunately, you'll start to see some of the stereotypical behaviors, whether it's you know pacing, self-mutilation, chewing on bars. Elephants tend to rock and sway. Bears tend to rock and sway as well. And that's a byproduct of um, being on display with human beings. So that brings us to the walkway. So let's talk about that structure. So the walkway for our listeners is how people will view our animals when they come to the wild animal sanctuary. It's a mile and a half long. It's typically 15 to 30 feet above the ground. And the reason is because we have tens, if not at times over 100,000 people a year, about 140,000, that come out to our sanctuary. And if you had that many people going by these animals at ground level, they're going to feel very, very threatened. I always liken it to maybe you're sitting in your house or your apartment, you have the front window open, you're eating dinner, and 100,000 people come by and stare at you while you're eating dinner. You're going to want to go do something. At the very least, close the drapes. But if not, you're going to get stressed and want to go out and maybe smack someone. So our animals are going to feel that stress. So from the very beginning, we never wanted to stress our animals out. So we have this elevated walkway, like I said, 15 to 30 feet above the ground. And that pretty much removes all the stress from the animals. Because once you get off of eye level with them, they pretty much don't care that you're there. It's kind of like us with birds and airplanes. You and I know they're there all the time, and we might see them fly above us, but They just don't enter into our area of concern. Same thing with our animals. By getting above them, we can have thousands of people a year come there, and the animals, they know we're there, but they don't care. The average visitor probably won't think of it this way, but these animals have what would be the animal version of post-traumatic stress. Exactly. That's a very good way to put it. So we don't want to add to that stress. Another uh, story that I would love for you to tell me is the uh, you, you have it was completely uh, incongruent to the rest of the park, a herd of alpaca. We do. We have a little bit of hoof stock, not a whole lot. And, and they're really a, adorable, by the way. You, they are. You can't help yeah, we had a little girl that just loves llamas and alpacas, and she didn't care too much about the tigers and lions, but she sure oohed and awed about those alpacas. And wait till they get their haircuts. They have these cute little fuzz cuts up on the top and everything, and they look really cute there. Very punk rock looking. I love that. Yep. May 16th is when they're set to be sheared. So anyway, we have a herd of about um, almost 50 alpacas. We got them in 2012. People in Colorado may remember that 2012 was a, a very dry year, even drier than normal. Folks that had livestock had a very difficult time finding hay for their animals or enough of it. And if they could, it was quite expensive. Someone, I think, told me, I don't have horses or anything, but about $19 a bale, which just sounds incredible. So in 2012... This couple that owned these alpacas here in Colorado, they approached us and they said, we have a herd of alpacas. We can't afford to feed them anymore. We'd like to donate them to the sanctuary so you can feed them to our tigers. <laughs> and, and we just did like you did. We kind of laughed and said, uh, we don't do that. We're not going to um, here on the property you know, just give one animal to another. Yes, our animals are carnivores, but we get meat that's 
destined for um, you know not being used anymore by people. So we refused that request to take these alpacas for, for our tigers. And then they kind of put the pressure on us and they said, well, if you don't take them, we're simply going to dig a big hole in the back of our property and put them all down because we don't want them. And it's like, okay, so if you, you're threatening to kill them, we'll take them. We'll be right over. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we ended up with a herd of alpacas, which fits in pretty nicely, believe it or not, because we don't run our carnivore habitats up to the road. So we have about a 200-foot buffer all the way around the property, which makes great space for our hoof stock. And as I explained to, to you last week when you were out there visiting, they and our female ostriches, quite ironically, they're not even the carnivores, are the only animals out there that kind of help pay their way. Because we have a, a lady already lined up this year that wants to take the wool or the fleece from our alpacas when we shear them in May and use it for her own device, and she's going to give us some money for it. So the, the alpacas help by contributing their fleece each year, and then, of course, our female ostriches lay those incredible ostrich eggs that we sell at our gift shop. Yeah, they're emptied out, by the way, and, and painted. I don't want people to think you're going to get a big scrambled egg party at the at the gift shop. No, so, yeah, and <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, they're they're for decorative purposes. So. Exactly, and they make for a great display piece and everything. So it's a it's a lot of fun, and the alpacas, you know, they just add a little twist to the place. And um, I think you pointed out when you were there that well, what about them living right next to wolves or lions or tigers and the strange thing is with our animals, they all come from such odd situations. They very quickly learn to accept who their neighbors are. And they learn as well that they can't get to me, so I don't need to worry. Plus, we go out of our way with animals of different species to have actually space between the fences uh, between them. Now, space is another issue. So now this brings me to your new acquisition. Let's talk about that. That's really impressive. It's the biggest thing we've done maybe ever. We just, two weeks ago, acquired over 9,000 acres down in southeastern Colorado. We currently have 789 up at our location outside of Hudson, up by Keensburg, and we're all but full. We rescued 39 tigers back in November and December, and that used up the last of our large habitats. Say that again. You rescued? 39 tigers on two different rescues um, from the same place, but they had different origins. But 39 tigers, 19 on the first one and 20 on the second one. Within, within a couple of months of each other. Actually, two weeks of each other. Two, two weeks. Yeah. That's an amazing accomplishment. Okay. So, so they, they're, they're using up the last of our habitats, and so we're effectively out of land, and we don't want to have to say no to requests to rescue animals. So we've been working for a number of years trying to acquire some adjacent land, and over the last year and a half or so, as we approached each of the landowners for one reason or another, it looked positive at first, but then it just kind of um, fizzled out. So we went ahead and bought some incredible land down in southeastern Colorado, kind of between La Junta and Springfield. So it's about 180, 190 miles southeast of our current location. And it, the nice thing about it is it has all the natural amenities any animal could want. And this is, is not going to be open to the public, as I understand it. Initially not. not we will have probably some special events down there for people who have helped purchase the land through their donations. But for the foreseeable future, it won't be open to the public, um, partly because it's so remote. And being open to the public has, requires us to create a huge infrastructure to support the public. Okay, so let, let's segue over to, to uh, visitors and what you have going on for visitors who come to your facility. You've got a calendar of events. Let's just go there for a little bit because we're running out of time. Okay. Boy, already? I know. Um, so coming up real quickly on April 22nd, which is um, Earth Day, we have our own wild Earth Day celebration. It's our second year that we've done it. Um, three years ago, we went down to the largest Earth Day celebration in the world down in Dallas, Texas, but we decided 
we have as much to offer. So we have our own Earth Day celebration on April 22nd. Um, we have a website dedicated to it, wildearthday.org. And if people bring out a plant, a shrub, a tree, they get free admission that day. And we That's have a good deal. all kinds of vendors. We have all kinds of great food. Um, people, we, I was just looking at the weather this morning. It looks like, you know, that Friday and Saturday are going to be a little spring-like, but it looks like it's going to be really nice on Sunday, April 22nd. So that would be a great way for people um, to come out to help us. By, uh, we'll plant the tree for you. You just have to bring it out. Right. Real quick, the funding. Talk about that because you don't get federal funding or state funding. This is all uh, local and self-generated. So It is. It's all um, pretty much private, just private donors and a few family founda- foundations that support us. So we don't get any government funding. We're outside of the scientific um, and cultural funding district that is here in the Denver metro area. So we just rely on supporters who believe in what we're doing. They want to help the animals. They want these animals at the Wild Animal Sanctuary to have a better life. And we're blessed to have some of the the best supporters and donors in the world. As a transplanted Coloradan, I've been here long enough to say I'm I'm a Coloradan, I can't tell you how proud I am to have this facility in my back. I was really profoundly affected by our visit. I can't say enough. If you're listening to this and and you have a little uh, spare change to send in, these guys are doing some phenomenal work. How do they they donate to you? So our main website is wildanimalsanctuary.org. It has all kinds of information about visiting. It has rescue stories. It has videos. It has pictures of our animals. It talks about groups coming out to visit. But wildanimalsanctuary.org. O-R-G. There's a big red button that says donate, and of course, it'll just take you to the right webpage. Or you can just give us a call, 303-536-0118. That's 536-0118, and we'll be sure to um, you know, set you up with the right people to help you out. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're proud of this. Like I said at the very beginning, sometimes people say it's a, the best-kept secret, but it's really not a secret at all. Every animal rescue organization that deals with large carnivores around the world knows about us. I mean, that's we're the only large carnivore sanctuary in the states that will take animals internationally. So um, even though some of the people here in Colorado may not know about it, people around the world know about us. And with our 9,000 new acres, that's going to take us well into the future as far as rescuing animals. So we have a lot to be proud of right here in Colorado with the Wild Animal Sanctuary. Kent, keep up the good work. We really appreciate it. Thank you for stopping in today and taking the time to visit with us. It was my pleasure, David. And, um, you know, anytime you want to come out again, I'll be glad to show you around. And maybe if you come out a little bit later in the year, you'll see a few more bears. Kent, thank you so much. For Colorado Issues, I'm David Venzetter.